Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, if I had a dollar for every time I've had to spell my last name, I'd be able to buy you all a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know, many times, you know, your last name's Sir East. Well, well, how do you spell it? And I just, I, I try not to pause too long, but it's, it's too simple for people. But it comes up in the Christmas story. East. Simply East. East means from the east, I should know. And that's all that we're given. From the east, I mean, now don't, don't get me wrong, it, it rules out north, south, and west. But do you realize how much land is east of Bethlehem? Where? How did it start, and, and, and who started it? In the rest of the story, in the Christmas story, you get these really cool things about Mary having seen an angel to visit her. And Joseph deciding that he's going to divorce Mary because she's got this crazy, wild pregnancy story. And an angel shows up to him and says, Joe, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. She's actually telling the truth. God's got a plan. It wasn't your plan, but just trust it. Later, these guys show up from the east. And they've got these incredible gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh that we sang about a few minutes ago. They come in, and, and already the city is in a bit of an uproar. And I want to stop and go, well, where did they come from? Where in the east? And scholars have been trying to figure this out for, for, for millennia, so I don't think we're necessarily going to unravel it and figure it all out today. We always picture three. Why? Because there's three gifts that are mentioned. But undoubtedly, I believe that far more than three showed up. When you travel in that day and age and across country, I mean across countries, and you're carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, some of the most highly prized, the most valuable luxury items, and you don't travel in three, you, you travel in a posse. You have a posse with you. Three guys could come into the city and, and sneak back out and, and go unnoticed. When this entourage comes in, the Roman guards go to Herod. They know a whole big group has arrived. They're rolling in heavy. And when they come to town, Herod stopped everything and said, bring them to me. Now, these guys are all blinged out. I know because I saw it in my grandparents' nativity scene. <laughs> wise men are always sharply dressed. You can never mix up shepherds and wise men. Shepherds, you know, in bathrobes. Wise men, you know, they've, got the, they've got the chains. They've got the jewels. They've got hats. They've got colors. And Herod says, bring them to me. And so they show up. Well, what are you here for? We're here to find the king of the Jews. Oh, another king is there. Well, well, you find out where that king is. And once you find him, you come back and let me know because I want to pay him a visit. And you have this incredible story in, in Matthew chapter 2 that, that picks up and it says this. It says, after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, 
and of incense and of myrrh. So this is why we always say three. But I promise there's more. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They disobeyed a direct order from the king. At the peril of their own lives, they they snuck out of the country after the gifts had been dropped off. And I know at this time you're thinking, okay, okay, Walt, this is Christmas. This is the Christmas story. We expected the Christmas story. No, 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 no. I'm going to talk you out of the Christmas story today, what you think about it. I'm going to talk you out of going back and doing the whole thing on wise men and shepherds. And I know some of you are like, well, you know how many messages, how many sermons I've heard on, about shepherds and, and wise men in my 80 years. And I said, yeah, I know. I understand. I want to take you into the making of the perfect gift. And in that, I want to take you on a little journey. And I want you to follow one of these gifts. And I want to, I want to bring you back out on the other side, hopefully understanding the Christmas story is far greater and far bigger than most people think or realize. To do that, I encourage you to go ahead and take out that little half sheet of paper that says life notes at the top. If you don't have one, raise your hand and the ushers will make sure that you have it so you can take a few notes here. And the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at why isn't Christmas a big deal in the Bible? Did you ever realize that? Christmas is not a big, very big deal in the Bible. And here's the first thing I want you to write down. Only four chapters in the Bible focus on Christmas. Only four. How many chapters are there in the Bible? 929. 929 chapters in the Bible. You take 929, you divide that into four, and you get 0.004%. Four thousandths of a percent of the Bible deals with the Christmas story itself. Yeah, I know we talked about how the, how the prophets were pointing forward to it, but only four chapters. I know it's our biggest holiday. You probably have more decorations for Christmas than any, any other holiday. And I know it's a holiday where you do something with your house, and you know, we go berserk about Christmas. It keeps creeping backwards and backwards into August. I think we start hearing Christmas music in the, in the stores. But 929 chapters in that book... Four tell us about wise men and shepherds and Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. There's four books in the Bible about the life and the teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been going through a series for the last year, 15 months, in the book of Mark. What does Mark say about Christmas? Zip. Nothing. Nada. Nichivo. Mark starts his his story with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. A voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. The spirit like a dove comes down on him and Jesus begins his ministry. And Mark says, there's where you start the Jesus story. What does John say about Christmas? Nothing really directly. The last of the disciples, the only one who died of old age, the, the last of the four stories of Jesus that was written... He's seen the miracles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke put in the text and to prove all about Jesus. And all all that John has to offer is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later he goes, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What, John? That's it. His entire Christmas story, God came and dwelt among us. 
That's all you need to know about Christmas. He came. Now let me tell you who he was. Let me tell you what he did. So out of the four books of Jesus' life, two say nothing about his birth. Matthew and Luke each have two chapters, and that's where we get the four. Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and he's trying to let them know that this was the king. This was the Messiah. And so he sets up in chapter 1, basically he has a genealogy where Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and, and Jacob begat Jude, and then you go to Google and say, Google, what's begat? Because all, all Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to say, this is the one we've been waiting for. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Jews' exile, then 14 generations from the exile to Mary. This is the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, the promise made to David. And he's connecting the dots. He talks about Mary and Joseph, and then he talks about wise men giving gifts fit for a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew's setting it all up. This is your king. May not be the kind of king you were looking for, but this is your king. Chapter 3, John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and he goes on just like Mark did from there. Luke writes two books. The first book he writes about Jesus' life, his, 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 his birth, his, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then he writes a second book called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And it tells how the church spread from Jerusalem throughout the known world at the time. Luke gets into this and he simply goes, let me tell you about who this guy was. Let me tell you about angels appearing to Mary and, and angels appearing to Joseph. Let me tell you about shepherds watching over their flocks by night when suddenly an angel appeared to them. The next thing you know, the entire sky is, is just opening up and you've got these heavenly hosts. You know, I don't know how many. A bunch of them. A bunch of them singing and saying, praise God in the highest. And Luke is trying to say, you have a God. You have a Savior. And he comes to the most unlikely of people. Chapter 3 of Luke. Oh, Jesus is a grown man. Let me tell you what he teaches and what he does. Four chapters of Christmas. And the only reason two writers put it there was to set up, to tell about the ministry of Jesus and what he did. Four chapters, that's it. Shepherds, wise men, and a baby in the middle. You got it. You know what the Bible does in this? The Bible focuses all the attention on the cross, not the cradle. 929 chapters, I would submit to you, deal with the cross, setting it up step by step. And you'll say, well, wait a minute, Walt. There's, there's entire chapters about people and, and numbers and genealogy. Step by step, here are the people who need a Savior. Here's the brokenness. Here's why the cross is necessary. The entire Old Testament points to it. The entire New Testament points back at it. The entire Bible comes to one point. There's a cross and an empty tomb. And if you miss that, you miss the book. If you miss that, you really miss what Christmas is all about. I'm fine. I'm, I'm good if you've, if you've decorated. I'm good if you're wearing your, your Grinch pajamas. I'm fine if you have lights on your house. I'm fine if you put up a tree. I'm fine if you have a nativity scene. But the point of Christmas is not just a baby in a manger. The point of Christmas is the cross, the death, the resurrection. That's the story. It's what it's all about. Everything in the Old Testament, as I said, was leading up to it. Everything in the New Testament pointing back to it. 
If you miss the cross, you miss the book. Amen. And if you miss the cross, you miss Christmas. I don't care how many cradle scenes, how many nativities you set up. The Bible is not about a cradle. It's about the cross. Amen. The four chapters, the, all these other things just point to it. Now, I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to go back and I want to trace one gift here. One gift that can give us a little bit of insight into the story. And it starts in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. This is the very beginning. This is the setup of worship when God has has led the people out of bondage in Egypt, which is a, a foreshadowing of Jesus leading us out of the bondage to sin. After he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, he takes them out in the desert and he says, this is is how you're going to worship me. Here's the place. Here's the tabernacle. This is what I want set up. And and watch what happens. It says there in verse 22 of chapter 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 50 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel. A shekel was a, was a unit of measurement, a u- unit to, to weigh things by. And a hen of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so they will be most holy, and whatever touches them will be holy. He continues, he says, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred. You are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfumes like it and whoever puts it on, anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. This is serious stuff God's talking about here. He's laying out how he wants them to set up the worship. It was simply to be a physical sign of what God is doing in this place and among his people. He says, I want there to be an oil. And do you remember the stories of the oils and there? Who was consecrated? Who was anointed with oil? And who was anointed with olive oil? Prophets, priests, and kings. Those who were to be represent God on earth. Remember the young shepherd boy, David. He's called in from out in the fields after, after the, the prophet goes through each one of, after Sam goes through each one of his brothers. And nope, nope, nope. And, and then he comes, to, well, is that all? Well, there's the runt of the litter. He's out tending the sheep. David's brought in, and David is anointed with oil. Years before he actually became the king. This is for generations to come. These people are to be consecrated for me. They're to be set apart. Another churchy word, they're to be sanctified. They're for my purposes, God said. And to signify, signify this, this is the oil that you'll make. And the number one ingredient, the base ingredient of that oil was what? Was myrrh. If we want to follow the gift that tells the story, the main ingredient of the anointing oil was myrrh. Well, you know where we're going next because we've already read this before. Myrrh was given to Jesus by the wise men. And it's a strange gift to give a baby, isn't it? It can be used as a, as a fragrant perfume. And some of you, you know, babies, sometimes you could use perfume around when, when, when babies are there. 
It's a resin that comes from a tree, and it's kind of sticky. Once it comes out, it, it weaves in the bark, and then it dries in little crystals, and, and you scrape all these crystals off. These trees grow in, in, in Africa, in Arabia, and, and they scrape this off. You have, to get a, you have to scrape a lot of it to get a lot of myrrh, and then you have to liquefy it there through a process of heating, and they, they mix it with olive oil. It's a luxurious gift because of the time and the effort and, and, and the far distance it has to come from. And God says that this is the first and the base ingredient in this special oil that's going to be used in the worship of me. Whatever touches it is mine. Whatever touches it is holy. And wise men bring this myrrh that sets apart as holy as a gift to the infant Jesus, Emmanuel God with us, who years later will go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 21 with me. Fast forward 30 some years later. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one would get. Now in Psalms and Proverbs, there's a couple of verses there that, that say for those that are perishing or those that are hurting, give them strong drink that, that they may forget their pain. And there seemed to be something here with strong wine of the day was mixed with myrrh and cre it cre helped to create a, a numbing and an anesthetic type of effect. And women were known to go but uh, along to the people that were being crucified with sponges dipped in this mixture of wine and myrrh and to offer it to those that were, that were being crucified. But Jesus refused it. He refused to get rid of the pain. They offered it to Jesus while he was dying on the cross, and he, he wouldn't take it. He will take the full brunt of what's happening. He will not numb any of it. He will take it all. Whatever you've done, whatever punishment God should, should roll on you, he didn't want to numb it. He took the full burden of sin for you and for me, the full punishment that day and refuse the gift of myrrh mixed with it. This one's for you. This one I've got you covered by. Next look at Mark chapter 15, verse 42. It tells us it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council we've been talking about as we've gone through Mark's gospel, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So, so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, John adds some things here. To, he, tells, he picks up the story. He doesn't disagree with it. He just gives us some, a few more details. In John's Gospel, in chapter 19, it says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by 
Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, the guy that came to Jesus in John chapter 3 in the middle of the night? This teacher of Israel that, that Jesus first said those words, you must be born again. So Nicodemus comes with Joseph and it says, the man who earlier visited Jesus in the night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. The gift that tells the story, offered to Jesus while he's dying on the cross, denied. And here, the next time myrrh appears in the story, it's put on the body of Jesus inside the cloth for his burial. They wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and they laid him in a tomb. So myrrh shows up at the birth of Jesus, it shows up at the cross, it shows up at his death, it shows up at his burial. This holy thing that, that weaves throughout the story pointing to the cross and the tomb that's going to be empty on the first Easter morning. It started way before the wise men and it continued after them. It's far more than, than, than a Christmas story about wise men and, and gifts. It's a story about gifts that point to a king and the cross that he will give his life on. So let's consider for a few minutes, what makes a perfect gift? What makes a perfect gift? Well, number one, I believe what makes a perfect gift is who it's from. In my office, both here and in my office at home, I've got shelves, and, and on these shelves I have little knickknacks and things, and, and everything on my little shelves tells a story. And some of them, if you were to walk in, you may say, well, what's, what's that all about? It may seem like something that you know, ought to be in a flea market someplace, or ought to be on a... In, 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 a, in, a, in a thrift store, in a garbage dump. But, but if you give me time, I could explain each one of those things, what the meaning is behind it. And normally, most, most of the time, what it is, is because of the person that gave it to me. It reminds me of them. There were special people, and the little trinkets remind me of those people. So what makes a perfect gift? Who it's from. And I think sometimes when we go back to this, when we, when we look at the Christmas story, we fail to realize that in the midst of all this, who Christmas is from. It's the Creator. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who, who created this wonderful world that we live in, this wonderful cosmos that this little blue ball that we live on revolves and, and, and circles the sun in. It's the Creator saying, this is from me to you. You see, what makes a perfect gift number two is Long-term enjoyment, not short-term thrill. Now, this time of year, there's, there's a lot of white elephant gifts. And uh, some of you may have been involved in, the, in that gift exchange thing where you deal the gift, and sometimes you hope the gift is still, sometimes you try to hide it so people can't see it and, and steal it from you. These gifts that are brought, they're meant to be opened, and they're meant to have a great dramatic effect, but, but then there's not really necessarily long-term enjoyment. You know, God says, I'm going to give you something that's not just going to give you peace and joy and contentment in the midst of your brokenness now. I'm going to give you something that will give you forgiveness, forgiveness of your sin and the long-term consequences thereof. I'm going to give you freedom from the shame and the guilt that came with your sin. And it's not just for this life, it's for eternity. It's for forever. And you think of the longest time period you can and just multiply that by 10,000 times 10,000, you might even have a smidgen of a chance of understanding what this means when it's for eternity. He says, this is so that when, when your heart stops beating and you take that last breath, my people will be with me forever and ever. This is as long term as you can get. This is eternal. 
What makes a perfect gift? Well, it's better if it's personal. It's better if it's personal. And God says this isn't about some distant, faraway God that is in the skies and just wants to sprinkle forgiveness dust down onto, onto earth. He says, I want to dwell in you. I want to dwell with you. I want to make my abode with you. This is not a God that's written a book to show us how we can someday climb the rungs of the ladder to hopefully reach him. This is a God that says, let me tell you everything that I've done to get to you. I've forgiven you. I've cleaned the deck so that I can be with you, so I can be in a relationship with you. Why? Because you touched the myrrh, my son. You've been made holy because of my son. The last sacrifice, he made you holy. He made you set apart. He made you a a chosen people for me. In regards to what you've done, he didn't numb the pain. He took it all so that I can be with you. People, this is a gift that we need to re-gift over and over and over again. See, what makes a perfect gift? The cost and the scarcity of it. The cost and scarcity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's only one. There's only one Savior. There's only one Messiah. The cost of this, you'll never receive anything in your lifetime that's more valuable than Jesus. So what makes a perfect gift? It's what we really need. The perfect gift is something that you really need. Did you ever have people give you gifts that you don't really need? You know what the perfect gift is? The one you really, really need. And I promise you, you don't need anything more than Jesus. I have needs, I have wants, but nothing more than Jesus. And a forgiveness that not only forgave you, but makes it possible for him to live with you for his spirit to reside in you. Have you ever stopped and considered, what does God want? What does God want for Christmas? Well, it's a simple word. He wants you. He wants me. You know, I know it's a lousy gift. It's broken. It's marred. But he wanted it so, so badly that he didn't numb the pain just to make sure that he could have you and me. And if you miss this, you miss the book. If you miss this, the cradle means nothing. Don't miss that Christmas points to the cross. What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.